good morning. Welcome to Hillsborough Village. Welcome to the Ruby. Welcome to Ethos. Welcome to, welcome to, welcome to. Um, my name's Joshua, one of the pastors here. Thankful to, to be in this room with you guys. It's cool, man. I feel like, I don't know, for those that have been around for a minute, it feels tangible to me that we're growing in heart right now. Does anybody agree with that, that our hearts are growing? I feel like that, that hunger and thirst for the Lord, according to the Lord, is growing. Like, the hunger and thirst for the scriptures, for exactly what the scriptures say, not our convenient discernment, <laughs> which isn't discernment at all. Like, I just, that's special. Um, that's what it's gonna take. You know, from, from the beginning of this year, we've, we've referenced Matthew 5, 14, where Jesus says, you're the light of the world, you're to be a city set on a hill. In other words, distinguished, different. That we would not in any way resemble the world, and that we would in every way resemble the perfect Jesus. And we hear that and we're like, yeah, that makes sense. But like, that's a daunting task, church, <laughs> that we would resemble like Jesus Christ as a body, you know? But I can tell that we want that. That's no small thing. If you're like me, you, gotta, you can have a pretty hard heart sometimes, pretty stubborn. But I just, I discern this, well, that's too fancy of a word, uh, what I think is happening is this church wants more of Jesus for real. Not the American Jesus, not the 2024 Jesus, but like the Jesus who was the word, is the word. If we're gonna be that city set on a hill, we need God's help so bad, y'all. Agreed? You agree? We need people that are praying for this church. I know some of you are already out there. By show of hands, I'm kidding. Um, who, who's been praying for us, by the way? Uh, no, but I don't know. I keep, I keep going back to that story with Peter where Jesus says that Satan has requested to sift you like wheat, you know, that Satan, that he seeks to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And he tells Peter, Jesus tells Peter, Satan is coming after you, and when you return, in other words, he's gonna nick you a little bit. You know, he's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna get you. But when you return, strengthen the brothers. And I just, I feel like the lesson I'm learning right now is what Peter says back to that word. I mean, imagine Jesus looking you in the eyes and going, hey, Satan, I won't keep looking at you. I don't want to make it awkward for you. But hey, Satan has approached the Lord and requested to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. I forgot that part. That's like the coolest part. When you return, strengthen the brothers. Peter's response, looking at Jesus, musters up all his confidence and goes, Lord, I'll die for you. I'll, I'll go to prison for you. He missed it. He missed it. 
What he should have said was, Satan has requested to sift like me like wheat. Jesus, unless you help, he will do it. Jesus, unless you do this, it's gonna happen. Way before the rooster crows. Like it's gonna happen way before that, before the rooster's even awakened, Lord. <laughs> before he even went to sleep the night before. Like, Jesus, unless you, I promise I will. But instead he makes this promise to Jesus. And it feels good to make a promise to Jesus. So confident and full of life. Jesus, I'm, it's me and you. I'm unashamed. Romans 1, I'm unashamed. It's like, church, if we're going to be the city set on the hill, please know we cannot do it. I promise you, you cannot do it. I cannot do it. I know that because of how many times I have proven that before the Lord with all my enthusiasm and excitement. I mean, my friends know. I get so hyped up. I get so excited, man. Just, just ask me about my diet right now. I'll just preach for like two hours. If you know me, you know, because I already did it. And I just, church, we have to be humble. This is not the sermon, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but let's be humble. Let's be humble in our pursuit to be like Christ. When you come before the Lord, like God, unless you, helper, spirit of truth, comforter, unless you do it, and then let's be confident, and you will do it. If I stay in this posture, you will do it. I will be a light. I will have courage. I will be bold. I will face prison. I will face death, strongly convinced of your reality in my life, and no circumstance, high or low, will rob me of that because of you alone, Lord, not because of me be because of you. Anyway, so as we pray for our church, pray humbly. Jesus, by your strength alone. Jesus, we'd love to lead a lot of people that don't believe in you to know you. We'd love to see a thousand atheists in 2024 declare that Jesus is Lord. We'd love that. Only by you, though. 2 Corinthians 12 has been ministering to me where Paul's like, he's so weak. And he asked Jesus, like, please remove this thorn. And he pleads with God, please. And I'm gonna make my own version of this a little bit, but like, please help me stop feeling weak. Please fix this for me. And Jesus looks him in the eye. Well, he doesn't look him in the eye. It's like a vision. But Jesus says, red letters, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And so then Paul pens the word, so I will rejoice in every persecution. Not a fun word. Think about that word. I'll rejoice in every persecution, every calamity, every hardship, every insult. For when I am weak, I am strong. What a weird prayer for 2024. God, will you help us get like supernaturally good at being weak so that we can be strong? Because when we're weak, we are not falling under this illusion that we can do it. We're falling instead into your strength. You can do it. You have done it. You will do it. Anyway, we're in James chapter four. We're in a series called Draw Near. It's rooted on this really beautiful promise 
draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That's the refrigerator magnet, if you're reading James 4. It makes sense that that's the thing we would remember. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Oh, yes, praise God. Oh, Lord, that's amazing. Admittedly, it's not as fun to read what comes before that and after it, which is basically, you're adulterers, purify your heart, you double-minded, you've really messed this up. You're like, oh, what? Hey, whoa, chill. I'm just gonna draw near so he'll draw near, <laughs> you know? Let's get back to that, James, chill out. And it's just this like, hey, there's actually some things in your heart that are preventing you from even being able to draw near, which prevents that promise from being fulfilled. God will draw near, but you must draw near. It's kind of a daunting passage. So for the past, I think, five weeks, we've been going verse by verse with a detour here and there going, okay, what comes before that promise and what comes after it so that we can live into James 4, 6? Last week, we were in chapter 4, verse 4, where he straight up just calls us adulterers. He's writing to the church. So if any of us are like, who, them? It's like, no, oof, you. Um, and he's, he's highlighting like you have these passions in your heart that are at war within you and you lust after all these things that are not God and you pray with selfish incentive and you sleep with the enemy and then come home and I act like nothing's wrong. And, and it's just like this call for the church to be pure hearted so that we can live into that James 4, 6 promise. So this week, if you're taking notes, we're gonna talk about a jealous God. We're in verse five. A jealous God. And I wanna read, actually, no, I'm gonna tell you a story first. It says my notes. <laughs> I, I could throw out this whole sermon and just like, man, I, I'm so tempted just to go, let's just worship Jesus for an hour together. I, I, I don't think we're gonna do that, but man, we, don't, we need Jesus so bad and our hearts just need to worship him so hard. Promise me you're gonna worship Jesus today. Just go worship him at some point. Just, just tell him how much you love, we need him. Oh, Lord, we need you so bad. Whew, I don't know what's happening. All right. I'm going to teach this sermon from here on until it is over. It's over. I'm done. Here we go. We just we need the Lord so bad, y'all. We don't need a whole lot else. We just need the Lord. That's really it. A jealous God. All right. Here's a story about me and my wife, Leah. Mm. You know, I dodge the whole pastors bragging on their hot wives all the time because that people that gets on their nerves. So if you're new here, I never do this. My wife is hot. When we were engaged, there was her, uh, an acquaintance of hers, her ex-boyfriend. <laughs> I don't know this man, and unless the Lord changes my heart, I will never know this man, unless to judge him and condemn him out loud to his face. Uh, no, but uh, grace and peace from the Lord and almost from me. And... Uh, he would slide in her DMs, and he wasn't all out being like, hey, baby, I miss you. Come back to me. That dude, you're with, no good. But he was like, oh, you look so beautiful. Yeah, like it was one, he was acting like he's like one, of his, one of her girlfriends, you know? Oh, girl, that dress, you know? <laughs> and he wasn't coming out going like, hey, if you still want it, I still want it. But I mean, come on, we know what's up. He's a dog. <laughs> and, uh, 
And so he was so frustrating. And I remember like Lee and I are engaged and ex-boyfriend, if you're listening, she never even point zero 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 one percent felt any type of way with those DMs. It was more like a mosquito, like shoo. So Leah never made me feel insecure once. Uh, I kid you not, never once. Like she, she, man. Just by the way, dating one-on-one, she never made me feel insecure from the first text we exchanged. She never played games, just dating one-on-one. Stop playing games. If you wanna hang out, ask them to hang out. And when they ask you to hang out, you wanna hang out, hang out with them. Stop playing games. You're getting in your own way, everybody. Please. Stop sending emojis that are vague. Stop sending texts that are weird. Stop not responding because you think somehow they're gonna think you're busy. We live in 2024. They know you saw the text and they know you intentionally didn't respond. Why are we playing these games? You don't want your marriage to look like that. Stop letting your dating life look like that, amen? Guys, be sincere in your dating. Hey, I wanna go on a date with you because I'm attracted to you. Hey, I'm not so sure, but I'll see you at dinner. Okay. (laughs) We're somewhere. I am behind, all right. I was jealous. That's what I'm making the point about right now. But I'm so tight, man, if y'all don't talk dating, come talk to me. I wanna do a whole sermon series on it, but I don't have time. Come talk to me about dating. No, I can't, no, because we gotta make the side. We gotta seek and save the lost, homie. Come get coffee with me. We gotta seek and save the lost. I'm not kidding. But come holler at me if you wanna talk about dating. All right. She never made me feel insecure but it still made my blood boil, this stupid dude. And he ain't stupid, but he's stupid. I remember being in Denver, Colorado after we were married. We love Colorado, the mountains. And we were in Denver, and I don't know what was in the air, but this is not, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. I mean, we went to dinner once, and on our walk, it was like four or five straight dudes that just were screaming with their eyes inspecting my wife's body head to toe. I mean, it was like gross. I don't know what was going on that day, but it was so gross. And I'm like a very, I I tend to be a very aware person of what's going on. So I'm watching body language. I'm feeling the vibes more than most in my humble opinion. Anyway, and so I had this six foot one dude, you know, one of those like jack dudes, like wearing a sweater. How do I see your biceps through your sweater, man? This is not good (laughs) for me. And... (laughs) You know, just up and down, scanning her, just humiliating, like, dude, what is that? I mean, we're holding hands, rings on, like, what is that? And all 135 pounds of me was just full of thunder and lightning, like, I'm about to bring the hammer down, dog. Like, you don't understand what I can do to you. Now, I would lose that 10 out of 10 times, but the spirit within me, right? (laughs) And it's so funny because I, I was never, Leah did not make me insecure. Like, we were having the time of our life. But what was I? I was jealous. And I don't know if this is true of everybody in a loving relationship, but here's my like, way to recap what was happening in me. With great love comes the potential of great jealousy. Because here's the truth. I love Leah more than I understood I could love a human. Remember when she got in her car accident and broke her back and had internal bleeding in her intestines and sitting in the ICU, but it was COVID so they wouldn't let me see her a crime. And I remember that. And I remember sitting on the floor wailing, and I'd never felt love in my bones like that. I felt physical love for the first time that time. Scared to death what was gonna happen to her, not knowing what's gonna happen, not being able to see her, FaceTiming her from time to time when she woke up from the medicine. Love her so much! 
I love her so much more than everyone else in this room. So much more. I love her so much. And with great love, you better believe there is a potential for great jealousy. You look at my woman wrong, I'm going to feel a type of way about it. Because I love that woman. Lord willing, I'm going to die before that woman. I will know her for the rest of my life. And so as we talk about a jealous God today, the Bible would describe God as the God who is himself love. He is love. Pure, incarnate, perfect, mighty, power. It is holy, perfect, like above human tier, love. So it would only make sense that with that type of love would loom the potential for great jealousy. And so I want to cover three points today. The first one will be pretty short, but I want to talk about the soul in every human, the spirit in every Christian, and then I want to end with a jealous God. Let me read James 4 real quick. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you, the soul in every human. Every human thirst for God. Won't be here long because I think we're all going to pretty much just be in agreement pretty quick here. But when we think about solar systems, when we juxtapuse. <laughs> that's French for juxtapose. Um, when we juxtapose humans from all other living creatures, like our distinctiveness demands our attention. We have this thirst. We have souls that are uniquely inclined to ponder our purpose. Ecclesiastes 3.11 would say that God has placed eternity on our hearts. Psalm 42 would say, as the deer pants for flowing streams, my soul thirsts for God. In the Old Testament, you'll see nations like the Philistines or the Babylonians or the Assyrians with gods like, I don't know how to say these gods' names, man. I checked with Luke, Luke already forgot. But like Dagon, 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 Molech, Pharaoh, Asherah. I mean, these are people that humans were making sacri human sacrifices for, offering babies to. The Pharaoh that you read about in Exodus thought himself a god, worshipped himself, as did all of Egypt. All over the Old Testament, you find nations and civilizations hungering and thirsting for the one true God. Today, we see it in Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, even cults like Scientology, or maybe we're seeking God in the sense of fulfillment and vocation, or a romantic partner, or a bank account, or a popularity contest. I don't know, whatever it is, the world is full of humans that long for something beyond themselves. We feel insufficient in of ourselves. We can tell there's something that needs to be filled. There's a thirst that needs to be quenched. We tend to want to know that we are not a random result of an explosion awaiting another implosion or explosion. Certainly that can't be it. 
It must be impossible that we're a something that actually came from nothing. That would be impossible, correct? Simply put, God put that in you. That's what I believe. That God put that sense in you when you're at the ocean looking at the stars like, what in the world? That's that awe in that human soul going, what is going on here? That's the beginning of human relationship with God, a soul that thirsts for God. You're not making it up. You are thirsty. John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. That's what Jesus says. Everyone's born thirsty. I give a water that quenches that thirst forever. Number two, the spirit in every Christian. So reminder, James is writing to a church, followers of Jesus that have received the Holy Spirit. So let's explore our side, our experience with the jealousy of God, because we feel this. Reminder of James 4 or 5. So God put a spirit in us and he yearns for it jealously. Consider for a moment, Christians in the room, the Holy Spirit within you. Consider it a magnet that has this intense gravitational pull to unity with God. For that spirit is from God and that spirit is God. So when you feel it in your chest, it's just doing its job. It's pulling you closer to who you're supposed to be in unity with. There is a spirit in you that is both loving and jealous. And we feel his jealousy in our chest. Allow me to read some scripture over you. I'm about to read like five minutes worth of scripture. Because you need to know that the Bible says it. That I'm not just excited. This is scripture. And as I read the scriptures, here's what I do. Acknowledge that Holy Spirit's here. Ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Is there a phrase or a verse or a reality that you need to absorb deeper within you, that you're so comfortable thinking about it that you've yet to actually really meditate on it and receive it deep within your heart? Because this scripture is going to preach. John 7, 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When you think about your heart, can you imagine going, it feels like rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That has now happened. John 16, 7 through 15. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you all the things that are to come, and he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
That's Jesus describing the spirit in your chest, child of God. Romans 8, 9 through 17. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers or brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deed of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, pause, in order that we may also be glorified with him. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 16. Just keep letting it wash. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, we have the mind of Christ. Now listen to the question that Paul poses in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? It's similar to what James is doing in verse five. He's asking a question that says, no, no, don't answer. Listen to the question. As deep within you as you can, listen to the question that's being asked of you. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. This pure and precious and powerful spirit of God. Do you think the spirit of God will be content with you having a love affair with the world? The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead? Do you think the spirit will let you wander away? Do you think that that spirit that resurrected Christ from the dead is content to let you wander away from your first love? We have longed too much for coddling and not conviction. Conviction is another word for the spirit in us being in disagreement with what we have let into our temple, 
and remember how Jesus treats the temple with zeal to keep it pure. The Spirit, who 1 Corinthians 2.11, knows the thoughts of God. Only the Spirit knows the thoughts of God. Is living in you. My mom used to get on my nerves. I was drinking and doing drugs and stuff, and she knew I was up to no good, and she'd say this super annoying sentence to me. I want to say it in a voice like this, but I won't because I need to make the point. But she would say, Joshua, God is not going to let you run too far. It was so annoying because she was putting the pressure of God on my life, you know? I'm like, let me smoke. Just chill. Chill, dude. I'm coming back, you know? (laughs) Anybody else? (laughs) Uh, She was putting the pressure of God on my rebellion, man. Anyone else ever been like, can you just let me sin in peace for five days, just five seconds, five months, five years, five years max, and then I'm back, baby, I'm back. Redeemed, pure, sanctified, mature, out of nowhere, I'm just back. That's how I felt. I'm just trying to get high. But as I lived that life, you know what ended up feeling pretty true? No, it felt exactly true. God would not let me run too far. Countless times he spared my life. Countless times he, I don't know why, he spared other people's lives when I could have killed them. Countless times I felt so at war when I was faded. He wouldn't even let me feel at peace with my highs. I'd just get high and cry. (laughs) It was as if I could feel the discontentment of the spirit within me. The spirit being uncomfortable, frustrated within me to witness me dirtying my temple in sin driven by the lust of my flesh. And the Holy Spirit was not content until it was restored back into God's presence, made right through confession and repentance and forgiveness and grace and mercy. And do you know why? Because it is the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. It is not, an uncomp- it is not a compromised spirit. It is pure. It is holy. It is truth. This is not a chill and vibey spirit. The Holy Spirit is not concerned with your vibes and what feels chill to you. Lord, help us when we mock your Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit refuses to have peace with things that do not have peace for you. It's one of the miracles of the Holy Spirit. It convicts, it rebukes, it confronts, 
it disturbs us in our flirtations with sin because the Holy Spirit was sent from the God that knows you and loves you and longs for you. The next time you're convicted by sin, instead of falling for the pettiness of shame and guilt, why don't you go hit your knees and tell God, thank you. Thank you, God, that you're not at peace with the things that mean me harm. Thank you, God, for highlighting in me that I just sinned, and I am very sorry. No excuses, not a list of reasons, circumstances, memories that led to that moment where you made the wrong decision, just a nice, simple, I'm sorry. I sinned. Thank you for drawing me back. Church, you don't have to be sorry and insecure. You can just be sorry and fully secure. For conviction is evidence that someone's alive in you. And perhaps we're a touch manipulative or self-sabotaging when we overindulge in guilt and shame when we have just simply sinned and need to make it right with God. So God, I come before you as much a son today as I did yesterday. The only difference is I got some sin I have to work through with you right now. But in no way do I fear that my identity has shifted. In no way do I fear that I've broken some rule that has created this major distance between me and you. I come before you a son, and I am very sorry for my sin. I am confident in who I am, and I am sorry because I did wrong, plain and simple. You ever dealt with someone who's bad at apologizing, or is that just you being bad at it? You ever dealt with someone who always has 10 reasons why they did the thing before they even get to the I'm sorry, or they hit you with the I'm sorry I made you feel that way? It's like, hey, are you sorry you made me feel that way, or are you sorry because you sinned against me? Which one is it? Can you decide? Because one makes me feel better, and one makes me feel like, are you telling me that it's how I interpreted what you did? That was messed up, because then that's kind of my fault. You ever had that happen to you? I feel like we do this with God, or at least I do. It's like, nah, Lord, I'm just sorry. I sinned against you. My bad. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, let me encourage you, church, be confident with your sorry. Embrace it. Lean into it. Don't dilute it. Let the Spirit continue and complete the work being done in you. It leads to a restored and revived intimacy with God. Don't hinder what the Spirit is trying to do for you and the Father, the helper, the Spirit of truth. We've gotten too good at turning down the volume on the Holy Spirit. We've talked it away as unnecessary OCD thoughts or unnecessary guilt. It's like, no, it's much simpler than that. The Holy Spirit is calling you back to a pure and holy relationship with the Father that you will very much enjoy. The Holy Spirit longs for complete unity with God Almighty, and that God Almighty is point number three, a jealous God. We're already at 10.08. We're gonna be efficient here. If your brain's starting to leave me, come back. The first three commandments, no other gods, no graven images, don't take the Lord's name in vain. What do you think God's concerned with? 30% of the commandments right off the rip. This is about me and me alone. Exodus 20, God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, I'm your redeemer, I'm the deliverer. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them 
or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice his love far outlives his judgment. Exodus 34, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited and you eat of his sacrifice and you take their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. In other words, don't even flirt with people that love other gods, not even a coffee date. (laughs) Our experience with jealousy is limited and broken. Maybe when you were a teenager, or maybe now, you'd flirt with someone to see if it could make someone else jealous, or maybe you were on the receiving end of that. It brought up jealousy that was rooted in insecurity. Maybe you've witnessed to or been a perpetrator of jealousy that led to harm. Jealousy led to a harsh insult, a harmful word, made you feel insecure, led to abuse or abandonment. And all of this threatens to make us misunderstand the pure and perfect jealousy of God. A jealous God refuses to let you live apart from him, determined to bring you back. You do not serve a God who is soft and mushy and lacks passion. When we are apathetic, he is not apathetic. When we feel neutral, he's not neutral. He is not just stoically holy, he is passionately loving. We are emotional beings made in God's image. I don't begin to understand this, but God has real emotions toward his people. Our relationship with God is not just one of him going, hey, you owe me, you owe me. Although that's true, infinitely true, we owe him. But with God, it's also, hey, have you not, do you not remember? I care, I, I actually care. I actually love you. It's not like this concept. I love you. Why are you doing this? What's happening? Why? What's going on? Why am I not enough? He loves you. Why? Why didn't you love me back? What changed? It'd be like me being in Denver and Leah winking at the guy, looking her up and down like, whoa. What? Holding hands, ring on finger. I mean, think about the hurt. Think about the the, the years of healing I would need if I watched her flirt with another man in front of me. But with God, it's it's chill, grace, grace. It's a jealousy that wants a pure and a right and a whole relationship. And it's a jealousy that will do whatever it takes to bring you home. That's Hosea. In chapter one, God instructs Hosea, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman. Just marriage 101. (laughs) Goals. And have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. 
The story of Israel is one where God is faithful and Israel is unfaithful. Fast forward to Hosea 3. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days and you shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without, I think it's ephod, or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. To translate, go get your wife. That's your wife. Pick her up. She is not allowed to play that role any longer. Pay a price to bring her back home. And when she is home, she will experience your goodness. This is a story of an uncompromised pursuit of his lover who has forgotten who she is. This is the character of a jealous God. Do not let them wonder. Do not let them run too far. If no one else, it's about me. A God who refused to let me wander, who refused to give me the death I was begging for, who in his mercy refused to give me the deep and dark consequences of my deep and dark actions. I'm not always the prodigal son, y'all, where I realize my filth and run back home. Sometimes I'm just the prodigal son before he ever repented and the father came all the way, got me, picked me up and walked me back home. We're not doing this. This is the jealousy of God. And when we are the adulterers as described in verse four, we can expect the jealousy that is described in verse five. A God that is discontent to allow his people to romance with something that means them harm. You do not worship a God that is content with a divided heart and praise God Almighty because that would be a cheap love. What would it say about my love for Leah if I was content when she flirted or slept with other men? Do I love her? It'd make all of us uncomfortable, wouldn't it? If I was like, yeah, it's fine. We have an agreement. Yeah, the agreement to not be in love with each other. So when we think of God being a jealous God, remember the full story. It's a God that went to the furthest lengths to wrap you securely in his love. It's not a jealousy that has never held you, has never healed you, has never pulled you back, has never pursued you, has never saved you, rescued you, encouraged you, sat in the quiet with you, traveled with you. He's jealous out of a love that has went to the furthest extent for you. And it's a love that cannot be separated. He's given you a name, an identity, a destiny. And he is not content with our distancing from that covenant. He's the groom or the bride that remembers your wedding day, remembers the honeymoon, remembers the trips, remembers the late nights, the funny stories, the moments where you cried together and living. He's got all these memories with you. He loves you. He's got something living with you. He is passionate. He's not just your sin manager. He's your first love. 
and he loves you and he's fired up about it. He's jealous. So in communion, we're doing it individually. Take a breather, for I have talked a long time and said a lot of things. But number one, sit with God for a moment and acknowledge that he loves you deeply. Number two, take some time to talk with God and process with him that he is jealous. You've heard from a broken man with broken intelligence trying to describe something so far and above me. Let God help you understand that he's a jealous God. Forgive any examples that fell far short, but he is a jealous God. He will help you understand this. Number three, thank God for the times that he went out of his way to bring you back home.